0: And Hyacera is that once-daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hiya Sarah to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off.
1: The same week that brought us the first woman nominated by a major party for president also brought us the shameful sentencing of a college rapist.
0: In today's episode, we talk about progress made and progress lost as we discuss politics and rape culture. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics, everybody. Before we get started, we wanted to ask one more time to check out PantsuitPoliticsShow.com where you can become a supporter of our show. We want to thank Kathleen for her incredibly generous donation this week. And you can also buy t-shirts. We have plenty of the red left. Well, not in all sizes, but just a few gray. So if you want a Pantsuit Politics show, get on, or t-shirt, get on it.
0: We'll start out the pearls today with probably your favorite news of all time, Sarah. Yes, that Hillary Clinton has clinched the Democratic nomination for president. I mean, I got plans for bigger news in November, but this was pretty awesome. And she was also endorsed by President Obama and Elizabeth Warren. I think it's funny how um, these endorsements were treated as, like, breaking news. Like, surprise, the Democratic <laughs> president is endorsing the presumptive Democratic nominee. But I think it was interesting that they picked... Warrens
1: to come out then, like to do Warren and Obama's at the same time. And there's a part of me that thinks that speaks to the fact that she definitely could be the VP, which I think would be amazing. But I think they stacked those the way on pur- they did on purpose.
0: Oh, definitely. It was sort of like, OK, we're ready to go now. It was it was a definitive nail in the coffin of the Democratic primary, in my view.
1: Well, and I wonder if it was Bernie was not ready to endorse, so they did Warren, like the next best thing, kind of.
0: Oh, that's interesting. It could be. I, I definitely... F- Feel this momentum toward Warren as the VP. I have to tell you that I look at that and think I would love to see two women on a ticket, but that would ensure that I cannot vote for Hillary Clinton. Like any kind of on the fence I felt about it would be gone. Because as much as I respect Elizabeth Warren as a person of passion and principle, you know, she's incredibly smart and tenacious. I think she's enormously effective in terms of being a surrogate. But that is such a hard left that I think that people like me who can't vote for Donald Trump struggle with voting for Hillary Clinton, but probably could There's just no road to a Clinton vote for me if Elizabeth Warren is the VP.
1: What do you see her as hard left because of are there any particular
0: positions that bug you? Oh, my gosh. All of the rhetoric about Wall Street from her makes me crazy. And I think that part of the reason our economy has been so tumultuous over the past eight years is because of instability in Congress And instability as it relates to Dodd-Frank. And you put Elizabeth Warren in the vice president's seat, I don't see any of that getting better. Hmm. I think we need a functioning financial system in the country, and nothing that I hear from Elizabeth Warren makes me feel that she agrees with that. I get that there is probably more nuance in her positions than comes across, But it does not come across. Because to
1: me, what she, she wanted the consumer protections in place. She created, you know, it was her sort of baby to create the consumer protection advocacy to have somebody actually in regulation that was looking out for consumers with regards to the financial industry, which really hadn't been in place before. I mean, that's what happened. You know, so much of the downfall was that the regulators and the credit bureaus were just not looking, they were looking out for the industry and not for the consumers. So... To me to say it's, you know, I have the same problem with the USDA. I mean, you can't protect industry and the consumers at the same time. And so I don't really have a problem with somebody saying, Look, we're we're missing this half of the puzzle and I always that's what I associate her with is just consumer protections within the debt and financing industries, not necessarily not like I don't see her as a Bernie, burn it onto the ground kind of person at all. I just see her as somebody who's like, Look, you know, we didn't have any protections in place. We still don't really have great protections in place. But I don't think it was instability because she was you know, I think it was instability because no, you know, other some parts of Congress weren't willing to give any sort of regulation um, a chance. And she was pushing for a pretty I mean, it's a big structural change, but I don't see it as super left wing regulation. I just it's super left wing because we didn't have
0: anything before, I guess. is That's how that's my perspective on her. Yeah, my perspective is that it's super left-wing regulation. I mean, it's a level of protectionism that I'm uncomfortable with and that I think in the long run is not helpful to our economic health as a nation, including the people that she's trying to protect, right? But we will have lots of time to talk about Elizabeth Warren and financial regulation, and I know that we'll continue to discuss these issues. But we should take a moment and just, you know, acknowledge the historic nature of Hillary Clinton's nomination. I posted on Twitter, and I'll link it in the show notes. This really interesting piece from Slate about how it's a historic moment for the women's movement, and that's not necessarily the same as being a historic moment for women. And I think that speaks to some of the emails that we've received from listeners who say, gosh, I'm a woman. I feel like I should be really excited. I'm kind of eh. And then also women who are genuinely thrilled by this and see it as major progress. So I thought this piece from Slate did a nice job kind of summarizing all of the different aspects to the nomination of a woman. Well,
1: I mean, my thing is, my only thing about this is, and I I feel like I would like to do a show on this. I think that to me, there's a sort of this undercurrent of discussion that like identity politics is something you subscribe to or you don't. And, Obviously, if that's true, I subscribe to it. But there's a there's a part of me that thinks you benefit from identity politics, even if you don't subscribe to them. Like I think there's sort of it's sort of a thing that exists, and I think there is benefits to all women to having it's, a, it's sort of even if it plays out on a very very subconscious level and the bias that people feel towards women. Something as big as this has has huge repercussions, sort of a ripple effect, not necessarily because of the policies Hillary's going to pass, just because. Of breaking down that barrier and even if it's you know because there's a little girl now who who wouldn't have thought about it who will and then she'll become president who knows what she'll do i mean it just to me it's the the reason it's for all women and men for everybody and not just on like the women's rights movement is because it's just like i said it's just this it's a very subconscious thing once you start to see women in leadership roles To have that have never happened before and to now have it happen, I just think it's a a very subconscious ripple
0: effect. And that's, to me, that's why it's such a huge deal and why I couldn't stop crying all day. That's part of what this article talks about. Like Margaret Thatcher, her policies would be seen by most U.S. feminists as not pro-women policies. Now, I, I disagree with that, but of course I do. But the fact of her ascending to the prime minister position when she did, I mean, that was the late 70s. Yeah. You know, that's a big deal. And and that's her point, I think, that it is a big deal. And it's a big deal in complex ways that not anyone is going to check all their boxes on. Right. All right. Well, let's move on, unfortunately, to what is becoming a too regular focus for us on gun violence. I want to start actually outside the United States because this is another aspect of our somewhat myopic media. I think we get more worked up about things that happen in the United States rightfully so, but we forget that there are things going on elsewhere too. In Israel on Wednesday, I believe, four people died when two gunmen entered Sirona Market in Tel Aviv. This is a sort of a culinary indoor outdoor market. The gunmen were reported to be Palestinian related to each other and in their 20s. 13 people were severely wounded in addition to the four people who died. Four people are still hospitalized. Both gunmen were apprehended. Hamas has not claimed responsibility for this, but Hamas issued a statement saying it welcomed the action and promised more surprises against the people of Israel during Ramadan. And uh, the United States State Department has condemned the violence as an act of terrorism. So, a really awful event in a region that sees events like this too commonly. We are going to do a primer on. The Middle East, it might be a while because I have to tell you that there is a lot to dig through. And I have scoured the Internet and struggled to find one sort of Middle East conflict for dummies, which I guess is what I'm looking for, because I really want to understand sort of Hamas, Hezbollah, the Taliban, like how how do all of these groups intersect and differ from each other? And how do, they, how do their conflicts intersect and differ from each other? So we're going to try to put that together and hopefully shed a little bit more light on the conflict between Israel and Palestine in that primer. Coming back to the United States, and this has gotten a ton of press, but Friday night, Christina Grimmie, who was a contestant on The Voice and kind of a YouTube sensation, was killed by a 27-year-old man from St. Petersburg, Florida. Police believe that this man didn't know her personally and drove to Orlando specifically to kill her and then himself.
1: Didn't know her personally, right? Right, did not Which know is her like personally. like a troubled fan. Also, important to note, she was a baby. She was 22 years old.
0: Yes. And then also in Orlando, at 2 o'clock Sunday morning, approximately 20 people were killed and 42 injured at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando. We don't know much about this because we're recording Sunday morning, so by the time that our podcast is published, there'll, there'll be a lot more information about this. We know right now that there were more than 100 people in the club when the gunmen opened fire. I think it is unnecessary for us to add additional speculation to all of the rampant and irresponsible speculation that's going on in the news and on social media right now, so we'll just leave it at this is horrific and sad, and one of the largest mass shootings we've seen in the United States in a very long time and I hate that we continue to have to talk about these stories. I will say that they did the police
1: have confirmed that he I just saw this right before we started to record that he did have a um some sort of explosive device and they are calling it an act of domestic terrorism and they they've I mean I'm not sure the police are doing. No, no judgment on the Orlando police, but to say domestic ideology or like he represented an ideology like don't don't say things like that till you know what the rest of it is, because it's just you're setting a fire on Twitter and like just just hold up on what until you know exactly what that is. But it seems to be some act of terrorism. They
0: just don't know from where I always think that dispute over characterization is interesting. Like, what else is it? I mean, I, I view any act that is seemingly random and involves so many people as terrorism i i struggle with sort of how how could this not be domestic terrorism yeah yeah i mean there's a yeah it is i i'm i don't
1: really know what else to say at this point i don't know if i like i read this and the first thing i thought was oh let's hope they've overestimated which is Sad that that's the only hope I can find in a situation like that is that they've just overestimated how many people were shot because nothing really, sh- as far as the, the speculation as to why this happened, nothing really shocks me anymore. And I'm just, I don't know what has to happen. I don't know if every single person in this country has to be touched by a mass shooting, if it just needs to happen in every city and in every state until we decide we don't want this to continue to happen. It's not enough for people to die. That sounds harsh, but it clearly isn't. And it's not enough for a lot of people to die. It's not enough for children to die. It's not a lot, enough for a lot of children to die at once. I don't know what will change in America before we decide that we don't want this to happen because it doesn't have to happen. And it's so depressing as someone who's lived through a mass shooting to see it happen again and again and again.
0: The other thing I think that we need to do is give ourselves a period to just pause and mourn On Twitter this morning, all I saw were sort of arguments about the Second Amendment and arguments about whether this was an Islamic terrorist or not and arguments about the fact that it's a gay nightclub and you said it was gay or you didn't say it was gay. I mean, just on a basic human level, can we take a couple of hours and just be sad that this occurred and say we're all Americans and we don't accept this as our new normal? I mean, I, it just depresses me to see all of that back and forth so quickly in the aftermath. And I do think some of that is the fact that cable news is just filling hours with this before they know anything real to say. I think that's right. All we can say right now is we we wish it hadn't happened. We don't know enough yet, and we'll keep an eye on it. So moving on to something quite different. In Texas this week, two valedictorians made news at their high school graduations uh, by revealing that they are undocumented immigrants. Uh, One issued a, a Twitter statement about it and then received, you know, as you can imagine, lots of support and lots of derogatory comments as well. The other, Larissa Martinez, delivered her valedictory address and revealed this information about herself. She has a full scholarship to Yale she wow. has tried to become a U.S. citizen and has been waiting for seven years for her application to even be processed.
1: Oh, my God. And
0: part of her remarks in her speech were that, look, I have tried to do this the right way. The system is broken. But I loved this comment from her remarks. I decided to stand before you today and reveal these unexpected realities because this might be my only chance to convey the truth to all of you that undocumented immigrants are people, too. Wow. Wow incredibly brave. And I think an excellent reminder that the characterization of illegal immigrants in this country is lacking in nuance, right? And lacking in understanding that we have a lot of people who want to come to America to make better lives for themselves, who we should welcome with open arms. So Mm -hmm. I was uh, really impressed that at 17, 18, these two young women were able to make these statements. Definitely. We always take a second before moving on to our main segment to compliment the other side. So, Sarah, do you want to start?
1: Yeah, I was going to compliment Dan Coates, who spoke at the Republican Senator lunch and apparently gave some a very eloquent speech denouncing Trump. Maybe I should just make this like my weekly good job whoever Republican decides to denounce Trump part of the show, because it seems to be what the pattern is going to be.
0: My compliment goes to Joe Biden for reasons that we'll elaborate on in this suit, but I really appreciated the open letter that he wrote in response to the Stanford victim and and his pretty consistent uh, willingness to speak out about sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's definitely picked up that mantle. So we will now turn our attention to what happened at Stanford and the broader implications as we talk about politics and rape culture in the suit.
1: And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer in my personal opinion. We are going to discuss the sort of viral news story of Brock Turner, the Stanford freshman who was caught sexually assaulting an unconscious woman at Stanford. He was caught and tackled by two heroes, two um, Swedish doctoral students who saw what was going on and stepped in, which mm, I get a little emotional talking about that. And he, they you know, they rescued this woman basically, and they tackled him, and he was um, arrested, and he was convicted of three counts of sexual assault. And I think the news story was um, wouldn't have gone viral in the way that it had had not the judge in the case sentenced him to six months instead of the available. I think it was like up to fourteen years, because the judge said that prison would have been basically damaging beyond what was necessary. And so he maybe will serve about 90 days in prison. His father's statement came out asking, you know, that came out that the judge, asking the judge to take leniency on him because of just 20 minutes and this one bad decision. And in conjunction with this sort of viral story that he only got six months, the victim statement was released. She released her statement. And it really is one of the most powerful things that I've ever read about sexual assault. She just... Lays it out what something like this can do to a person, how it how it felt to wake up and realize you'd been sexually assaulted and have no memory of it. His perception that he his bad his bad decisions were drinking and being a part of quote unquote promiscuous college culture, and really that's not what this is about. It just I I, I I'm not going to do it justice. I highly recommend if you have not read the victim statement to go ahead and read it. And so it's really touched off this firestorm about rape culture and the privilege and benefit of being sort of benefiting from rape culture in the way that Brock Turner did. And there's a lot there's a lot going on in the story, to say the least.
0: The victim statement should really be required reading for every college freshman. Mm. I think if I have the capacity to talk about it well enough and, and I need to find that in the next 10 years or so, I think it's something to be discussed with high school women and men as well because it really shows you the entire landscape of emotion that someone who's been involved in an event like this experiences. And it's so specific in the details. It's very hard to read. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine about it, and he said I had to just stop several times and then go back to it because it is very graphic, but it's graphic in a way that is intended to just be real. I mean, these things are graphic. There's nothing to sweep under the rug here. And she even talks about sort of the assessment made of both people involved and how she was reading these horrific details of what occurred to her in the paragraph above his swim times. And I don't know, all of that was just, it's impossible to be unaffected by her words, I think. And it's so curious to me that the judge in this case was um, more persuaded by the this is a steep price for 20 minutes argument than by her statement about how her life is altered forever by what mm-hmm. happened. And, and she's in her own prison, you know, for much longer than he's going to be. So I think that what's really striking about this is how normal it is. And that's where I sort of lose my ability to, to speak about it in a very eloquent way because I sort of zoom out and think this happens all the time. All the time. And we know about this one because of the incredibly courageous victim. And that should not be our standard. We should not. Victims should not have to be as courageous as this woman was. And we know about it because the kid involved was a star athlete, you know. But this happens all the time. This is so normal that it is painful to think about.
1: So here is where I find the nuance. Here's where I'm going to take 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 a little nuance trip down the way that this case has been, how we have all been reacting to this case. I don't think any discussion is served by the villainization of one side or the other. I really, I've, I've read a lot of things, and I what finally crystallized it for me as I was reading a blog post, and the guy was like, I would n- never raise my sons to be like this. Okay, so here's where I have a problem with this discussion of this case. If we think that the problem in our culture and the problem illustrated in our culture by this case in particular is the individual choices of Brock Turner and this judge, then we are fooling ourselves. This is not about the fact that Brock Turner is a terrible person and this judge is a terrible person. Do I think that the decisions they made are terrible? Yes. But do I think this is about them being evil, villainous people? No. We have a culture... That perpetuates rape and sexual assault from a very young age in a million different ways. And if we don't all take responsibility for this situation and say, what are we doing that gives the idea that women's bodies are available to anyone, I don't think we're going to go anywhere because I just don't think this is about oh, he's that, you know, these are, they're bad people. I would never do that. Like there's just my tennis go up anytime the discussion becomes, well, they're crappy and I would never do that because that's not really what's happening here. You know, like this isn't rape culture runs so deep. It runs so, so deep. And it's not because Brock Turner's father sat down and taught his son that you can rape women. Like that's not what happened. You know, like there's a, undercurrents of privilege and access and misogyny and all these things that if we don't really sit down and think about them down to the fact that I had a lot of conversations this last week with women. My mother talked about how she had conversations with women who said, well, she was passed out behind a dumpster or, you know, how girls rub up on boys and what do they think is going to happen? This is deep. This is not just about these individuals the reason we're all reacting is because i think we're reacting to something we know it runs throughout our culture which is the idea that i, I heard a woman my age say yeah i always think like well what did she, in my mind just goes to well what did she do that you're in some way shape or form because of the way you dress or the way you act or the decisions you make responsible for sexual assault as the victim and you're not and i mean you know i i thought as a mother of three sons I got to start thinking about this now. I can't wait till high school. I can't wait till sex. And so, you know, what I decided to talk to my boys about this week is week cuz I read a really great article about how rape culture begins in middle school by you can talk about a girl's body. And so, with my 7-year-old and my 5-year-old this week, I said, "We need to talk about the fact that we don't ever ever have the right to comment on someone else's body. That's not our right. We don't get to comment on someone's body because it starts by comments. and that means I have some kind of ownership over that. and I can say what I want about your body and the way your body looks and what I think about your body. And it just goes from there. So I mean that's to me, if we don't all take sort of some kind of personal, and I have personal responsibility for rape culture and thinking about the ways we perpetuate this in our own lives, like, this is just going to be a viral story and then we're going to move on and nothing's going to happen.
0: Yeah, the lesson in our house this week with my five-year-old daughter was personal space. We've talked mm. a lot about personal space. Because I think that that is the point, right? You do have to get to very early education. This is this is similar to the discussion we had when we talked about abortion and how all all of our conversations about sex have to start super early. And that doesn't mean that you're talking about sex with a five-year-old, right? It, right. it starts with sort of what is my body And how do I respect it? And how do I show respect to other people's bodies and demand their respect for my own? And I think it is just hard to think about that. Because when you talk about it that way, there is a generation of people who hear, well, you failed as parents. And that's not what this is about either. Mm, That's so true. I also think there aren't sides to this issue. It, nothing upsets me more than reading, and this is coming from, some conservative commentators who I typically respect. But this idea that rape culture is some figment, figment of feminist yes. imagination. Shame on you. How, yeah. how dare you talk about it that way, George Will and others. And I almost linked some of these pieces in our show notes and thought, I don't want to give you another click. Like, yeah, you don't there. There are not sides on this issue. There mm-hmm. really aren't. There are not sides about what happened to this woman at Stanford. There's a really great video from Upworthy that uh, demonstrates how silly victim blaming is, yeah. and it shows two little stick figures talking about a murder. And so, like one stick figure says, "Oh, James is dead. Well, what happened? Well, he was killed. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Was he at a party? <laughs> was he drinking? Did he have on a yellow shirt? <laughs> you know, yeah. and it. Oh, and and then and then they say, who did it? Roger. Oh, Roger's a great guy. It must have been an assisted suicide. James must have wanted to die. And it's a really, really poignant demonstration of how unbelievably silly and offensive the discussions that we have about women who've been assaulted are.
1: And I think to me, what I think is particularly with regards to, you know, the way people are talking about Brock Turner and his dad, you know, so the first thing was, They're putting out this really cute, like, athlete picture of him. And so then I did notice many pictures of him and his mugshot. It's like the media was like, oh, yeah, you're right. We should probably start using his mugshot. But to me, it's like, no, 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 no. When we say you didn't use his mugshot, my thing is, no, let's not start villainizing him like we do every other criminal. Like, I don't think that's the answer either. Like, I don't, I just don't, I mean, as a parent, when I read his father's statement, It's not about, well, I would never do that. I could see myself. I could see myself as a parent being like, oh my God, my son has done this horrific thing. How do I make sense of it? So to me, like, put yourself in, don't think I'll never be there. Think, what if I was? What if, what if I was? How would I act? What does that mean? Like, don't just click it off and think like, that has nothing nothing to do with me. I think it's not just about how we talk about rape, but it's not when we talk about sex in general. You know, like I tweeted this to somebody, I forgot. One of our listeners sent us a really great uh, message, and I remember hearing this on This American Life. Like we talk about sex like it's a baseball game, and in a baseball game there is a winner and a loser. You know, it's bases and it's you get to first base. And th- I mean, but we don't want losers in sexual encounters. I, and when I listened to this This American Life, I was 34 years old, and it was the first time in my life I'd ever heard somebody say sex should be continuous and consensual, like, or consent should be continual and enthusiastic. I really never heard somebody out loud say, hey, if you, I mean, I'd always heard you consent, like, that was something, obviously, I grew up hearing, like, you know, people need to say yes to have sex with you. But the idea that, like, it's continual, like, okay, well, do you like this? What about if we try this? That it's a conversation between two people about exploring things. And I just. Never heard somebody say that out loud. And I'm 34 years old. You know, like it should I shouldn't have gotten that long in my life before somebody said, Hey, sex is a conversation in a sexual education setting. Sex is a conversation and this is what it should be like. Like we don't, we don't do enough of that. We don't have enough conversations about people's bodies and the interaction when you're a sexual interactions and sex positive education and not making it this adversarial discussion. And I mean, it's just all these things are important. And to just think that making sure everybody knows that Brock Turner is a terrible, awful, horrendous person. I don't know. I just don't think that serves any I don't think that serves a conversation at all.
0: I completely agree with you. I I almost think that the picture of him floating around is a good thing. Like understanding that someone who looks like this can do this. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't diminish its awfulness. Because the villainization of rapist, has that got us that far? I'm not really
1: sure it has. Has that served us that well? Is, or does it just perpetuate that you need to watch out for evil guys lurking in the bushes?
0: And I also completely agree with you about the way we talk about consent. And that's another thing that, you know, to try to shift this into more of a problem solving mode. I think you're right that the way we talk to our kids about things can lead into that before we ever get to a discussion of sex. When I did my yoga teacher training, I took classes with Anna Gasjeli. I've mentioned her before on the show, and she does an amazing job of talking about the level of trust and respect between yoga teachers and their yoga students. And if you've taken yoga classes, you may have seen teachers adjust students before. And that idea is the teacher comes over and physically puts hands on your body and changes the position of your body to help you experience the pose in a different way. And she is very, very cautious about adjustments because she said... Anytime anyone touches someone else, that consent should be explicit and specific. And you walking into my yoga studio does not automatically give me permission to put my hands on your body. It especially doesn't give me permission to put my hands on yeah. your body when your eyes are closed and when you don't know which part of you I'm going to touch and why I'm going to do that. Maybe you are feeling just are fine where you have are. there are you know? trouble with
1: that. Let's teach yoga teachers who... Do not have the best. Yes, absolutely. History, famous yoga teachers do not have the best history with sexual assault and all these things.
0: And so she taught us to if to first cue just using our voices. Right, mm-hmm. try raising your arm higher, but if that doesn't work, to yeah. say. Can I touch your arm? You know, and I think that that is a really good example of how to talk to kids. And that's sort of my plan with my daughter, Jane, to try to start teaching her to say, can I tickle you? Right. Can I tickle your feet? And I think that kind of stuff is how we start to move past it. And I can feel eyes rolling. I understand that that is a huge shift in how we think about ourselves and our kids and our culture, but the casualness with which. Coaches mm-hmm. slap their players on the butt well, is and not know, doing us any Fitzgerald, favors. Patty
1: Fitzgerald, who is one of my absolute favorite people I've ever come into interaction with on my blog or
0: in real life, I found her because she,
1: a, a blogger, wrote a really sort of went a little bit viral. Patty's thing is stranger danger is all wrong. Teaching your kids to be afraid of strangers is not the right approach to prevent sexual abuse and assault because they might need a stranger. First of all, you might need a stranger. You need to teach your kids that sometimes you need to reach out for help to the strangers around you. So she does things like look for police officers, look for, mo- look for other mommies with kids, stuff like that. But she says, you know, the issue is sort of icky feelings. You're the boss of your body. You don't go places without talking to your mommy first. And I've heard before, too, with regards to, you know, kids that you teach them, there's nothing you can't tell me. There's nothing you could tell me that would ever make me stop loving you. Like, it's about open lines of communication, teaching them that they are the bosses of their body. And that all starts so young because one of my least favorite things I see pretty regularly as a mom is like the sort of the um, sexual, not sexualization, but like romanization of babies. Oh, look, they're boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh, is this your boyfriend? Is this your girlfriend? Like if, and I, you know, if I come off as a crazy feminist of people, I'm not really sorry because I do think that's the beginning of rape culture. I do think that's the beginning of, you know, and I've even heard stuff as, as little as baby's going, oh, well, she, the you know, this baby boy's not going to like that you have another boyfriend, baby girl. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, if you don't think that that, it, it seems so harmless, but it's a tiny little brick in a big wall. And that all adds up to people thinking that they have the right to touch women, unconscious women, building up momentary glances into what in their mind becomes consent. Because we perpetuate the idea that Women are for men, basically, and women are for men's pleasure. And it starts really young. I see it all the time.
0: And I hate to bring up the, the whole bathroom discussion again, but I do think we are today, presently, with the conversations about transgender people and their access to restrooms, that's something a five-year-old can get his or her head around. If they're hearing a parent talk about how, no, you're born a boy or a girl, and just the way we discuss this whole situation, it goes back to your point, Sarah. We're teaching people that they do have a right to comment on other people's bodies and that they do have some kind of power and privilege over it. Exactly. And to have power over them. Yep. And
1: tell them where to go because of their bodies. And because I don't agree with the way your body is. And I have a right to tell you where to go based on your body. Not to mention that I can't imagine I think about my little boys in these conversations than the fact that we're only talking about protecting little girls from sexual assault. As if little boys don't get sexually assaulted and men don't get sexually assaulted. And it just, I mean, it really, really upsets me. Because I think we're missing the point and we're leaving people vulnerable. Including our own children.
0: And I have to say, as a parent, I want a lot more education about this. It's not just about sex ed in our schools. As a parent, I need more information about how to have these discussions, about how to react when my five-year-old tells me she has a boyfriend. Like, there's a part of me that just flips, right? Especially when she'll say, oh, we're going to get married and then we'll kiss. like. I don't know if my best course of action is to say, no, 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 or to say, oh, interesting and not really react or what. Like, and that's a tiny example at at the beginning of a very long road. So I guess part of what I would advocate for is more parental research and information in addition to the education that we do for our kids and especially that we do for our kids in schools.
1: Well, I would definitely recommend Patty Fitzgerald for anybody who's looking for resources. She has books and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, when I try to do, (laughs) my five-year-old came home one day, and he was four at the time, and said, "Uh, when you lick another person's tongue, it's called tongue-like kissing. And I (laughs) said, that is something adults do. And he said, I was like, that is not for little kids to do. That's for adults. That's my thing is always adult things. Like, that's what I do with cussing because I'm not going to be censored by my own kids. So if there's something that I'm like, eh, this makes me nervous, I just call it an adult thing. Like, I'll call it move on for for now while they're little. My seven-year-old goes, why is it an adult thing? And I said, do you want to lick another person's tongue? And my seven-year-old said, no, gross. And then my four-year-old who's always been – and I really – and not perpetuating, like, I did not put this on him. This was just something everybody sort of independently noticed. It was hard to miss. He's really likes girls. And he said, so my 7-year-old goes, so gross, I don't want to do that. And my 4-year-old Amos said, I do. That was a good point. I do. So, I mean, I think that, you know, it's just, you have to, every, that's a good point, which is every kid is individual. So it depends on the kid and how you talk about it. But One of my new favorite things I learned in a recent podcast um, on the Robcast, which I'm a big fan of, they said culture always wins. Culture always wins. And so right now we have a culture that perpetuates situations like Brock Turner. And if you as an individual don't like that culture, then to think that you're just going to say a few things to your kids or, you know, stay silent in conversations and go no further, then the culture will continue to win. And until we decide as a culture that this is not acceptable and that villainizing Brock Turner or even can I just say even if Brock Turner had gone to jail for 14 years that would fix it then we're all gonna continue to be in this place like that's not gonna help anything you know I'm not saying that he shouldn't have gone to jail for 14 years but even if the judge had you know sentenced him appropriately that's not gonna fix rape culture.
0: Well, there's one more layer to this that I wanted to get your thoughts on. I've seen where impaneled jurors are protesting yeah, sitting with this judge and I think that's that. in to my knowledge that is unprecedented and I think that is a really big deal. Yeah. And there's something to me in so so there's a one one side of me says, "Yes, that that is the way that we stand up and change the culture, right?" Yeah. And the other side of me says, Is that not mob justice? And is our judicial system not important enough to go about this in a different way and one that respects the process? And are we not vilifying Brock Turner because of the same types of social media outrage that fuel all manner of protests about things that, in a way that never, you're right, it causes like a temporary stir but not lasting change. So I'm kind of struggling with that juror protest aspect.
1: Well, I mean, I think that there's a difference between holding someone responsible in the best way that you can and villainization. So I don't really have any problem with, like, the recall of the judge. It's not that I think what he did was okay, and I don't want him to be held responsible. I also think that perhaps, arguably... What's happening to Brock Turner right now is punishment in its own way. Still would like him to go to jail. But, I mean, there's a part of me that's like, this is going to follow him the rest of his life. He can't ever get rid of these Google results. Like, this is a lifetime sentence, way longer than even the 14 years he would have spent in jail. Like, so I think there's, I want to hold these people responsible. Make no mistake. I just think that if it ends with the villainization and not meaningful forward movement, and I just want to say, too, I think the absolute best thing that had come that has come from this is this victim statement. The bravery she showed in that statement and releasing this statement is exactly what we need because I think what's so brilliant about that statement is she does both. She leaves she does such a great job in that statement of holding him responsible in very specific ways like not just you know, you're a terrible person, you ruined my life, but, like, really laying out, like, this is where your thinking is wrong. This is why this culture is dangerous. You think that this is about drinking, but it really isn't. And she just goes point by point and really tears down the underpinnings of the culture that says that this is why. And because it's such a personal letter and because it's from her personal experience and it's so emotional and so moving, but it's just so brilliantly and emotionally written like just the way she does it I think she does exactly what we need which is you know hold the individual responsible talk about the individual situation but but illustrate how it speaks to the culture more broadly and so I hope that that's her statement is really the sort of legacy of this sort of viral situation I, I saw one of my favorite bloggers Ann Helen Peterson she posted it and then the next day she's like she works at BuzzFeed and who's who's the one they published it and she posted sort of the chart like of the like the metrics of that piece and she said she'd never hit, her, seen any sort of social share situation go I mean it was like three million people within 48 hours or something crazy so I hope that that speaks to the fact that people are reading it and you know internalizing it in a real way, and we can move forward from just the villainization of Brock Turner and the judge.
0: And that's why I totally applaud Vice President Biden for writing back to her in an open way. I also am really relieved and impressed that her identity has been kept confidential. Yeah, me too. There aren't any easy summaries for this conversation. I think that our conclusion is, one, this is not... There's not a Democrat and Republican perspective no. on this issue. <laughs> and to the extent that people try to manufacture those, shame on them. Yeah, you're wrong. We decided you're wrong. That's our yeah, And we don't do that very often here, so I think that <laughs> that, is, that says something. And then I think the other thing that we just come back to is that we, we all need to understand this better and work harder at it because it is cultural and goes way beyond this one swimmer and his 20 minutes of horrible judgment that forever altered the life of this woman and his own life and and I think your point about having some compassion for all the people who surround him and how difficult it is to grapple with this is a good one too so we will move on now to something much much lighter in the heels
1: So this isn't necessarily a lighter subject um, in the heels, Beth, but I watched Made in America, the O.J. Simpson story last night on ABC. Did you get a chance to watch it? No. How was it? Okay, so this is a five-part, 10-hour ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. Chuck Klosterman called it their magnum opus. It's been getting insane reviews, so I was so excited to watch it. I've been waiting for it for weeks, and it really was... It's so... You know, people hear it and they're like, I'm not watching 10 hours about the O.J. Simpson trial. So let me first dispel that. This is not about the O.J. Simpson trial. It is a part of the story, but, like, they haven't... At the end of the first two hours, he just met Nicole. Like, it was really about how he rose to fame, his football career, which I don't really know anything about. You know, when he was arrested, O.J. Simpson, to me, was, like, some lower actor person in the Naked Gun series. Like, that's all I knew him from. I didn't really... I don't. I didn't understand the sort of breadth of his fame until I watched this, and they just do a really good job of. They're not just telling the story; they're using the story of O.J. to really talk about race. And so they do. They talk about L.A. at the time. They talk about the Watts riots. They talk about sort of how he was as a kid. Here's an interesting tidbit I learned in the thing: O.J. Simpson's father was gay, and like everybody knew it, which I think is really interesting for the time period that which and the in the environment in which he grew up in. And so that goes through, like, his college career, his professional football career. He's just sort of gone into acting, and at the end of the first episode one, or part one, he just met Nicole, who was 18 years old when she met him, which is crazy to me.
0: It's so weird to see how fast our lives are becoming history. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt when I watched Confirmation, too. Like, it's so, it just feels like such a short period of time to be seeing these things documented in a historical way and in an artistic way, you know? Well, I mean, it's because, to, it's like, I
1: really still think it's like 2003. That's why it seems so jarring to me. I'm really not fully internalized the fact that it's 2016 and like 2000s. To me, it's like, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's still like the 2000s. No, really, it's not. We're, like, creeping up on 2020. So that's probably why it seems so weird to me. But they're doing a really good job. I'm very – and apparently, I think by Tuesday, the rest will be streaming on ESPN. So I'll probably, like, gobble them all down in one chart. I'm a – I'm totally – are you, like, a documentary person?
0: I can be. I go through phases, like – it's it's not often – my husband will laugh when he listens to this because I really struggle to watch anything very serious or substantive <laughs> most of the time because I'm just kind of spent. But then I'll get kind of excited about something and, and binge on it. See,
1: I'm like a total – like I'm – this, this probably plays to my strength finders, which we've talked about before. That I'm an input person. Like, I like to think like I'm taking in information all the time. And so that's why I really like documentaries. Like, and so I'm either watching a documentary or I want to be watching. I'm the absolute opposite. If I'm going to sit down, it needs to either be a documentary that I'm going to learn something from or like some serious, critical darling so that I feel like I'm learning about something everybody's talking about or learning about sort of the art of TV and how it's moving forward. So I'm like, I only watch. Like right now, the only thing I'm watching is right now, the Moj Simpson thing, and like Game of Thrones, I'm in the American. So it's like either critical, super serious stuff, or nothing. I, arguably Game of Thrones is not super serious, but it's not light,
0: that's for dang sure. No, I want light and breezy all the way. I want things that make me feel good. I want to watch Undercover Boss and cry when somebody gets a check for $50,000 that they didn't expect. And no, I want to no, watch I'm... Shark Tank and see people, like, going for their dreams with some silly product. Like, I need to just, I need to walk away from my television feeling better about things. No, I need to, like, I need
1: to walk out and be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be, this, this is like a This American Life episode. I'm going to be telling everybody, did
0: you see this? And Did you know this? I didn't know this. Did you know
1: this? No, I'm like that exact opposite. That is so funny. <laughs>
0: Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Fancy Politics. We always enjoy interacting with you guys on Twitter and Facebook. I super missed having a briefcase this week because we had so much interesting discussion around the normalization of Donald Trump episode. So we'll pick that up again on Friday and anything else that we hear from you throughout the week. Our Facebook live event with Predict It was super fun. You can find that video on our Facebook page. And until we talk again, keep it nuanced, y'all.